Damon is a writer, video essayist, public theologian. His work is centered on the intersection between liberation and faith. He is, of course, the author of God Who Riots, Taking Back the Radical Jesus. He is from Santa Maria, California. All right, yeah, Santa Maria, California. Uh, you know him, his work is on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Please give a, a warm Mission Hills welcome to Damon Garcia. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Oh, it's good to be here. I, uh... Y'all know Brad Onishi? He wrote that book about Christian nationalism, Preparing for War. Uh, that was, I guess, the last event here, uh, author event, and I saw him, like, uh, a few weeks ago at this other speaking event he did, and I told him I was going to be here, and he was just like, make sure you ask about the tamales. I was like, definitely. So they gave me tamales. And, uh, I, yeah, I love it. It's already a good day. And, uh, yeah, I'm Damon from Santa Maria, California. I wrote this book, The God Who Riots. And it's, um, it's interesting. As, uh, the book has been out six months, and it's been interesting to see some of the responses and think about the whole evolution that got us here. Uh, many years ago, I got this comment on a post of mine that like really bothered me. It was from an old youth leader. Um, those usually don't go well. And he, it was on a post where I wrote, it was an old post, I said something like, Jesus was a brown body executed by the state on a stake on a hill in public for everyone to see what happens to people who stand up against the rule of Caesar. And then I added, don't tell me Jesus wasn't political. Some like typical edgy Christian shit, uh, Christian leftist shit, you know. But uh, he commented and said, was Jesus really political or were the people who killed him being political? And I had no idea what to do with that. I was like, just so confused. And I felt like, how do I even start this? And why did he pick this post? And why would he, I haven't heard from him in years. This is so strange. And I um, had already been, come to this place where it was obvious to me that if we look at Jesus in his historical context within the Roman Empire, we see Jesus with a whole new lens where it's obvious there was a political nature to his message. And it was obvious that the type of vision he had for the kingdom of God and how the world should be within the kingdom of God conflicted with the kingdom of Caesar. And I think a lot of, there, there's some of us who've begun thinking like that, where it's like it's starting to become more and more clear it's almost like a new Jesus. Do y'all remember the first time you, you got high on weed? I remember, for a lot of us, the first time we smoked weed and the first time we got high on weed, two very different events, very different times. That's what happened to me. And I remember it was uh, the same day I got this comment. It was the same day I got high on weed for the first time. And I would smoked it before, but it was like, I, I probably wasn't smoking it right, but my friends didn't explain it right. And so one day at my friend's birthday party, my youngest friend walking around with a bong, 
sits me down and he's like, we need to get you high for the first time. I'm going to walk you through this. This 21-year-old kid with Lyme's disease and a medical marijuana cart. And uh, he's like, my, he's like, yeah, my weed is stronger because I have a cart, so I'm able to get the stronger weed. And that taxed weed, you know, that big pharma weed. And I, and so we did the whole thing, take a deep breath, and then inhale, and then hold the whole thing, and then I got high. And then I remember being it being so hard to focus on anything, and yet people kept trying to have deep conversations with me, like complex and long-winded. And I was like, how are you doing that? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? And one of them was ranting, like, if Twitter is going to uh, censor people, then it has to decide if it's a platform or a publisher. And I'm like, I already forgot the beginning of your sentence. It's too much. Um, then eventually I got away and chilled out, relaxed. But I kept thinking of this comment. I couldn't get it out of my head. And I was reading it over and over and over. And I realized, I think the thing that bothered me was that he clearly didn't want to have a conversation about this Jesus that I was talking about. Like, he was trying to just put me in my place. He was asking me questions like the serpent asked questions. It's like, did God really tell you not to eat from that tree? Was Jesus really political? It's like, just to cast doubt. I'm like, I don't need this. And... I've, I cannot unsee what I've seen. And it's a shame that he can't see what I've begun to see. I think a lot of his experience that where it's like anger for someone not getting it turns into grief a bit. And I realize there's a lot of us that can't unsee this. And then I remembered I was high and I was like, okay, I get it. I understand. It all makes sense now. It's nice not caring about certain things. <laughs> and so it's uh, discovering this Jesus almost feels like meeting Jesus again for the first time. Shout out Marcus Borg for writing a book with that title because I would have used it if he didn't. And I, um, I think what's, what's so fascinating about this is that Suddenly, the way we look at today and the way we apply the Bible, the way we apply Jesus, the way we look at people who follow Jesus, all of that changes too. In 2017, I was an evangelical minister, and a couple months before I left that whole world, I had this meeting with these assistant pastors, and I said, I feel like I can't invite other young adults to, to service on Sunday. And that was a problem because I was the young adults minister. So it was literally my job to bring young adults in there. And I said, there's so much that my peers are talking about that's never talked about here. That year there was Trump's travel ban on Muslims that people were talking about. People were talking about um, white supremacy, police brutality, immigration, trans rights. And there were Black Lives Matter protests that year and women's marches and teacher strikes. And every Sunday, we didn't talk about any of that. And then after I told them this, one of them said, I feel like, there's, I don't think there's as many people thinking about this stuff as you think there are. I was like, ugh, I get, that's it. Like, we're on completely different pages. I can't do this. I was like one of the last straws. And um, so then, yeah, I left. But 
By the way, I, I added that story at the very beginning of my book, the, literally the first page of the introduction. I now I'm not so sure if it was, it was the best idea because uh, my publisher has sent me like published reviews that people have written, and I've read most of them, and or skimmed through some of them. But all I'm, I have a theory now that most reviewers just read the beginning of the book and the end of the book because they only referenced this story and something at the very end of the book. But it's weird how they frame that they all mentioned this 2017 story and this meeting with these assistant pastors, but they frame it like that's the reason I wrote the book. Like I was in that meeting and I left all bitter and then I committed myself to this personal vendetta to like really stick it to them. I'm going to show you guys. I'm going to write a book. You're wrong, uh, which is ridiculous and cringy. And it's like I went to therapy. Come on. I'm good. I don't think about those people ever. Seriously. And uh, I wrote this book. Not, not to get good reviews or make money or whatever. I wrote this book for people like us who have always had this sneaking suspicion that Jesus was way more radical than what people were letting on. And it's a... Uh, wait, hold on. Let me check something. Try to remember what I was going to say. Oh, yeah. And so this Jesus, the title... The God Who Riots is in reference to this scene a few days before he's executed and he goes into the temple and flips tables and pours out coins and uses this demonstration to say, you've turned this place into a den of robbers. And something I find really interesting that reshaped the whole story for me is that a den of robbers isn't where people are robbed, it's where robbers go and hide to avoid the consequences. So essentially, Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of his day of using the temple and using their religion to hide and avoid the injustices going on in the world. And I think that's more relevant than ever because we all know Christians who use their religion to hide and avoid like that. And so I included that story as like a contrast, kind of like where I was and where I am, but especially contrast between how certain Christian communities view what's going on in the world and what Jesus was actually about. Jesus never avoided the injustices of his day. That's one of the things he preached against. And it's, um, I want to talk about that whole temple demonstration too a little bit later, but I want to talk more about his ministry leading up to that first. And also I posted this uh, Instagram video talking about this event and talking about Jesus as an organizer and a protester. And some people got really mad in the comments, unfortunately. This one person was like fighting for their life. Um, I thought it was funny. I'd, I'd also made it a collaboration post with the Mission Hills LA account. And so I, was, I thought it was funny because I was thinking like they're getting a little bit of an insight into the, what most of my comment sections turn into. And I showed up and met Ryan for the first time. He's like, hey, it's the Instagram troublemaker. And, uh, and then, I don't know who's running that account, but somebody got in the scraps with that, too. There, someone was, like, leaving a few comments in the threads. I was like, dang, going in. I was, but it was funny because I never, I never respond. I can't. I don't argue with people online because I love myself. And uh, I developed this role a really long time ago. If I ever read a comment and it makes me think, wait, what? Then I don't respond. 
I can just ignored for good. Out of sight, out of mind. And uh, so that could be a good rule for some of you, I'm sure. But this person who was fighting for their life in the comments said, Jesus' mission was not political. It was spiritual. He was all about forgiveness. And I get, I get the uneasiness with having a conversation mixing Jesus and politics, especially contemporary politics, because I know we're probably all tired of Christian nationalists using Jesus and um, exploiting Jesus and turning Jesus into this American patriotic, gun-loving, libertarian capitalist guy. It's like, yeah, that's not good. And I don't want to use Jesus like that. I don't want to just use Jesus to justify my politics. But what's really important in understanding Jesus, I, I agree he was all about forgiveness, but let's think who did he go and forgive? Who did Jesus go and heal? Who did Jesus include? The people he forgave and healed and included into his community were people that his society chose to not forgive and not heal and not welcome into community. It's like some of those healing stories begin with Jesus stopping and seeing people that everyone else just walked on by every single day. And so that choice to treat them better than the way their society treated them was an inherently political choice because it was based on a vision for a differently run society, alternative to the way that Rome was running that society. And so... One of the questions I had, hold on. One of the questions I had when writing the book was, why does Jesus interact with the people he interacts with? And then more specifically, why does Jesus forgive the people he forgives specifically? And today we have, we have I think we have the word forgiveness so twisted, upside down. Like when I was a little kid, I was really little, just barely learning basic meanings of basic words. And I was in the bathroom, and I accidentally dropped one of my mom's ceramic angels. It was okay. She had like 20 of them. And I was devastated because I thought I was going to get in trouble. And I was crying, and my parents heard me, walked in, saw me crying, all just yelling. And I was like, I did it on purpose. I'm like, what? I was like, I did it on purpose. I didn't realize I had the words purpose and on accident mixed up. Like, I thought they meant the other thing. I was trying to say they're on, it was on accident, but I just kept saying, it was on purpose. And my parents kept saying, why? Why did you do it on purpose? <laughs> I think that's how bad we got words like forgiveness mixed up. Because when we say... When we talk about forgiveness today, it often is used, first of all, for abusers. Like, we need to forgive abusers. And then it's used as, like, pardoning harm. We need to pardon someone for the harm they caused. But if that's what forgiveness was, then it would make sense that Jesus would go around forgiving the people guilty of the most harm. 
Instead, what Jesus does is he goes to the people who had the most harm done to them and tells them, your sins are forgiven. Which is fascinating. First of all, I think a huge difference with the way they talked about forgiveness. In a first century Eastern setting, so much of these spiritual concepts were understood communally, never individualistically like we do with most spiritual concepts. And so there was the sins of society and there was the forgiveness of society. There was sins of the community, sins of a nation, judging the nations and forgiveness of the nations, the people, the community. And in a Jewish sense, there was an understanding of forgiveness as like chains that you needed to be free from. And forgiveness was understood as a release from those chains. It's, it's easier to understand when we think of like forgiving debts. That seems to be still tied to its original meaning of releasing someone from something that's being held against them. And what I see Jesus doing by going to those who have the most harm done to them is that he sees... What we still see today, that the guilt for the sins of society always fall on those who experience the most harm from the sins of society, those who are the most marginalized, discriminated against, and oppressed. They're always scapegoated for the sins of society. And Jesus goes to them and releases them from that guilt. And he frees them to look outward for the cause of their suffering. No longer do they have to buy into the guilt that other people are putting on them. They're released. My friend CJ is a psychotherapist, and he was working with people in low-income housing for a while, and one of his clients was going to be evicted because they found drugs in her apartment. And so they had a meeting with the housing authority, and they were able to convince them to let her stay. Promised she wouldn't break the lease, the rules of the lease. And then afterward, my, my friend CJ was like very conflicted about it because he thought it was wrong that they were even, like because of her drug addiction, they were just going to put her on the street. And so afterward, he pulled her aside and he talked to her for a bit and said, uh, I really wish that this wasn't happening to you. I wish we didn't live in a world that punished you because you use drugs, because you have a drug addiction. And it's really inhumane the way that you're being treated. This isn't right. And I hear that story and I think that's more like what Jesus was doing when he was forgiving people. He's releasing them from the guilt that is put on them releasing them from the pressure that is often scapegoated onto them. Um, yeah. And so Jesus chooses sides is what I'm trying to say. More and more and more, it's the, the idea of Jesus not being political, the, the idea of Jesus just being spiritual, the idea of Jesus avoiding all injustice seems more and more silly to me every day. Jesus, in his teachings, you see him say, blessed are the poor, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the hungry, for they will be filled. Blessed are the, those who weep, for they will laugh. And we got that word all mixed up too, the word blessed. Like nowadays when we use the word blessed, it's like referring to people like material possessions. So it's referring to like people who could afford a vacation home uh, or like a bidet or something. It's like, thank you, Lord, for this blessing. And, uh, and yet, in the first century, bl- blessing was, was a way of saying God is on your side. It's like we got it mixed up and we think the bougier you are, the more you're blessed. When to the bougiest of people, what Jesus said was, woe to you. Woe to those who are rich, for they have received their consolation. Woe to those who are filled, for you will be made hungry. Woe to those who laugh, for you will weep. And I do believe Jesus Jesus loves everybody. But this message of God is on your side, and you are released from this guilt, and that message needed to be heard by those who were suffering the most harm in his society. Yeah, he loved everybody, but he still needed to choose sides. Choosing the side of the oppressed um, is something we see throughout the Bible that God does. There's all this, and he almost becomes a litmus test for God. Like, how are you treating the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners? That determines if you're righteous or wicked for God. Um, and so, let me look, let me get my book. Hey, I wrote a book. I'm on the screen. <laughs> Hold on. I want to I look at my book for this next part because... There's details I want to talk about now, and I want to get them right. Um, In this book, in the last couple chapters, because the whole book, I'm trying to give you a framework for this lens of Christianity and this lens of Jesus. So when we get to the temple... It's like obvious, like, oh, yeah, of course that's what Jesus does. So in the last couple chapters, I'm talking about Jesus in the temple. And I'm talking about it as, a, as an actual organized political demonstration. And the similarities I see with today's political demonstrations. And I love this quote from the Marxist humanist philosopher Raya Dunayevskaya. Well, Uh, talking about the revolutionary movements of the 20th century, she said there's certain creative moments in history when the self-determination of ideas and the self-determination of masses readying for revolt explode. It's like these are the moments you must pay attention to. Something is in the air and you catch it. And she says that is you catch it if you have a clear head and you have good ears to hear what is upsurging from below. Eyes to see and ears to hear. And I think Jesus, 
So much of his ministry was focused on what is upsurging from below. And that is where Jesus is always to be found. And so he led his own few disruptive demonstrations that last week of his life, starting with him walk, go, riding a donkey into Jerusalem, which now has become so like, uh, so mythical that it's like, yeah, that's Palm Sunday starting Holy Week. But some of the details make it very interesting. Like the fact that First off, his entire ministry was headed toward Jerusalem. Whenever he leaves a town, it's because he has to get to Jerusalem. So this is where it was culminating. Also, his ministry by that time had been rapidly growing, and word of it had been rapidly growing. So people in Jerusalem had to have heard who he was. And for a group of people to be there with palm branches ready, I think we have to assume people knew he was coming. That's such a basic thing, but growing up, this story was taught like it was such a magical event. Like, let me see, Mark 11 says, Jesus, um, and as, as they're approaching Jerusalem, Jesus told two of his disciples, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here immediately. And growing up, that was taught in a way as if uh, it was Jesus' omniscience that he knew there was going to be a donkey over there because he knows everything. Without considering a more human explanation of they organized this and someone put that there and told him, which I think is more believable, even if no matter how much you love the Bible, is more believable because Jesus never does that kind of stuff before that. He's never predicting stuff before. He's never like write a number on that card and turn it over. 69. Ah, you got it. He's never doing that. Instead, what is likely happening is they, a group in Jerusalem said, we know you're coming. We need to do something big. And so... And also everybody holding palm, palm branches, somebody had to have handed those out. They didn't just magically appear in their hands, handing out like picket signs, like, you gotta stand here, make sure you're there, make sure you're saying this when the, this passes through. It's like, okay. And he was probably waiting at the entrance. It's like, are they ready? It was like, no, we need more people still. It's like, ah, oh, come on. And uh, he gets on the donkey. I think it's, it's also really important when you start to see Jesus in this more human way, a lot of it starts to make more sense. Like the fact that Jesus is, uh, he heals people and sometimes he says, don't tell anyone about what just happened. I heard so many sermons theorizing about like, why? Why did he tell them not to tell anyone? Was it like a lesson on pride or something? When we, we didn't consider because he didn't want to get arrested he didn't want word going out and for his ministry to end sooner than it needed to. Dude was constantly trying to avoid getting arrested. And you see that especially throughout this last week of his life. I had a friend who was in a, a seminary class and there was this teacher he really liked who said, you know, the reason that Jesus 
chose to not jump off the cliff when Satan was tempting him, saying, jump off and let the angels catch you if you are who you say you are. The reason he chose to not jump was because he knew that he would die. Yes, there is the the whole message he was trying to prove to Satan too, but also, if he jumped, he would have died. And we don't think about that. The angels wouldn't have got him. He knew he was going to die. And so, it's so much more interesting when we can see Jesus as a human planning this thing out. Also, Jesus as someone who's smart is something that we need to reclaim. And uh, so then he goes, rides a donkey. And uh, from the Mount of Olives, Jesus entered through the east entrance of Jerusalem and the crowd surrounded him, preparing the road and spreading their cloaks and leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. And they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now this whole sequence of actions seems to be a symbolic reenactment of something Zechariah talked about. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in Matthew's account, he even directly quotes Zechariah there. And again, growing up, there is this talk, so many people talk about this. Jesus, no, Jesus is God because he fulfilled the prophecies. There's these prophets from centuries before who said that the Messiah would do this, and he did it. But think about this. Jesus, as a Jew, and all the other Jews who were there, read Zechariah. They knew what Zechariah said, and they chose to do this deliberate reenactment of what the prophet Zechariah talked about because Jesus was hugely influenced by the prophets. And I don't think this takes anything away from Jesus. I think this makes Jesus way cooler because he's part of a long prophetic tradition that he's reclaiming as he's critiquing his own faith tradition of Judaism. And, um, and then from there, his community showing all of us, a new way. And this, uh, yeah, here's the other thing. It was probably purposely timed. Now this part, this is when we start getting very extra biblical. We don't know this for sure, but we know, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, that each of the, um, each of the, Passover weeks, because that's what it it was at the time, Passover week, not Holy Week, uh, began with Pontius Pilate and Roman soldiers going into Jerusalem and setting up base by the temple because they had to keep extra watch to make sure that nobody got any wild ideas as they were celebrating the liberation of their people. It's like, be careful, settle down now. And so it is very possible that as Pontius Pilate is riding a war horse with soldiers and weaponry through the west entrance, Jesus is entering through the east entrance on a donkey surrounded by the people 
with leafy branches. It's also interesting to think of it in uh, the context of the next verse in Zechariah that says, he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This demonstration was like a deliberate political lampoon of who was entering on the other side. There's a message being sent here. Two warring kingdoms. One with the power and the weapons on their side and the other with the people on their side and with God on their side. And um, let's see here. What else did Jesus do? Oh, yeah, him staying at the Mount of Olives. Like, it's, <laughs> we read that he, every evening, he would go through the Mount of Olives and stay in Bethany. And then every morning from Bethany, they would go through the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. They were avoiding being in Jerusalem at dark. Also, again, likely to avoid getting arrested. And so they keep taking this path through the Mount of Olives to Bethany, through the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. Eventually, they find out. Like, no matter what you believe about the historicity, if you believe Judas literally betrayed him or not, like, that path was going to be found no matter what happened. And it is possible, though, that Judas pointed that path out. And that's why they're at the Mount of Olives. That's why he's resting in the mountain. He didn't go to a random mountain. That was the pathway that they kept taking. It's like there's, these actions are calculated. They're not random. And then we see him go to the temple. Mark says, then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Once again, this is deliberate. This wasn't a random temper tantrum. And even the, when we pay attention, okay, he's turning the tables, pouring out the coins. He's putting a temporary hold on the activities of that outer court of the temple to send this message during this temporary shutdown. And throughout this chapter, I go back and forth between these demonstrations and the demonstrations I was seeing in a Black Lives Matter protest. And here's the other reason why the book is called The God Who Riots. I, I remember after George Floyd was murdered by police, the third night, there was, they burned the police precinct um, in a live stream. I was, I was watching it. And... At that time, COVID had just um, started spreading and a lot of people were talking about all the deaths, unsure of the mortality rate and asking, where's God in all this? And as I was watching this burning police station and protesters dancing in front of it, my first thought was, that's where God is, right there. And this is the kind of God I'm talking about who's on the side of the oppressed empowering what is upsurging from below. 
But a lot of people weren't sure about that whole thing. But let me read you some of the quotes, because I interviewed people in Minneapolis after that happened and got different perspectives. Queen Jacobs, a Minneapolis swim instructor, had said, I think we all, who had like saw the fire, she's like, I think we all felt a sense of strength and community and a piece of what our ancestors went through and when they were able to be liberated. We're done backing down. We're done rolling over. We're done dying. And then one of the men that were arrested for setting out on fire said in an interview, for once we feel like we're in complete control. The police can't do anything. We're burning down their sanctuary, their home. Juno Choi, the owner of a local brewery a few doors down, had said it has become sort of symbolic of police brutality and systemic racism across the country. It was really a protest about what's been going on across the nation for a long, long time. And I really like this one. Jennifer Starr Dodd, a relief emergency organizer for the local Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, said, I think of it as the Pentecost. For those who don't know, Pentecost refers to this event in Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit appears to Jesus' disciples and they see flames on each other's tongues. And um, then she says, uh, it's like a holy anger. The spirit came and it was a great fire and everybody changed in that moment of Pentecost. I see the burning of the third precinct as the same. It changed everyone, whether they like it or not. And, um, and yet I imagine some people were like, wrong time, wrong place. Hey, man, good for you. Yeah, I agree with all you. What was that? The MLK's quote about the white moderate. I agree with your goals, but not your tactics. It's like, but so interesting when you think of it from another perspective. And then it reminded me, too, of um, in December 2014, there was a Black Lives Matter protest in um, the Mall of America. And... Um, there was an interview with one of the organizers because they had also done a protest the year before and it was like during the Christmas shopping season. They're like, we don't need this right now. This is the wrong time or wrong place. This is a place for shopping. And she said, we're disrupting business as usual. That is the whole idea. We're not going to stand in a corner and protest because nobody pays attention to that. We're going to disrupt your life. You're going to know that business as usual in America and the world is not going to continue while black people, unarmed black people, are literally being shot and killed by law enforcement in the street every day. Like this is, there's an ancient tactic to go to the place that people, people especially say is the wrong time and wrong place and disrupt there. And this phrase, you turn this place to a den of robbers, that Jesus says, he's actually quoting Jeremiah, another prophet he was hugely inspired by, who also had his own temple demonstration centuries before Jesus. And where, where is, it's just so funny to look at. Where, oh, I lost it. Give me a moment. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
And there's no explanation exactly what he meant by that. But I imagine others were like, don't do this here. Not right now. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And he's like, don't listen to them. There's something God is trying to tell you. And speaking for God, Jeremiah says, for if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly one with another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood on this pla- in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place and the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know, I too am watching, says the Lord. So, that one you could especially get. That den of robbers means a place where robbers hide. Okay. Here's another thing that I find fascinating about Jesus. Once you, once you get a hold of this Jesus, the whole like divide between like uh, we're Christians, so we work with other Christians, and we're not Christians. We don't, like that becomes very strange and silly. He tells this parable while he's teaching at the temple. That is one one of my favorite parables. He says, talking to the religious leaders, there's a man with two sons. He tells them to go work in the field. One of them says, "Yes, I will," and he goes and he doesn't do it. The other son says, no, I won't do that. And then later, does it anyway. And then Jesus says, which son was obedient? And they have to say, "Ah, the son who said no, but did it anyway. (laughs) And then he says, in the same way, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to the kingdom of God ahead of you. It's so wild. It's like, dang, Jesus. And... Of course, they get very angry. But what I find interesting about that question is he wasn't asking which son was righteous. Like, both are unrighteous. Even the son that did the work anyway, he still disrespected, dishonored his father by saying no. And the other son was very dishonorable by not following his word. It's not who is unrighteous. They're both unrighteous. Who's obedient? Like, who's actually doing the work? Who's doing the work of God? And I think when you grow up in a very like Christian fundamentalist environment and are told you can't hang out with those people, those people are bad, those people are evil, meeting other different people who aren't Christian and maybe you were told they're bad and seeing how they treat people better than a lot of your Christian friends, that's world shattering (laughs) to a young fundamentalist. And I think this is the kind of phenomenon Jesus was talking about, like, Oh, the work of God, that's, that's way bigger than what y'all got going on. The work of God is to be done by the people who do it. And the work of God is the work of liberation, which is being done by all kinds of people, whether they're Christian or not, whether they're under a specific banner of a specific religion or not. And I'm following that 
God. I'm following that Jesus that's so much bigger than the, the Jesus I was taught about when I was younger and the Jesus that's taught to us through culture and the Jesus taught to us through colonization and the Jesus taught to us, to us through um, the religious right, all of that. It's, it's uh, yeah, meeting Jesus again for the first time. And now I'm in this weird position. Most of my friends aren't Christian. And uh, now I'm the guy at parties who non-Christians like talking to about God. Because they're just like, yeah, I'm not really into this, but I like the way you talk about it. <laughs> and it's the strangest thing ever, because I, I never try to talk to any of them about God or Jesus or any of that. But they, they love talking about it. And I think what it is, is they felt this God whenever they feel a desire for justice or liberation or love. And they've been told by the Christians in their lives, like, that's not God. No, that's something else. Or that's satanic, even. And I'm, like, there to be like, no, that's God. <laughs> like, trust me, you have it. It's there. That's good. And the last thing I'll say... My friend, Ryan Cagle, pastors a church called Jubilee House in Alabama, Walker County. And a little more than a month ago in Walker County, the, the police arrested a man named Anthony Mitchell and froze him to death by putting him in the jail's kitchen freezer as punishment because they thought he was causing them trouble. Uh, they also arrested him while he was having a mental health episode. And there was a video of them putting his body into the cop car to take him to the hospital. But the police report said he was fine. He was awake. He was alert. So this is how they got exposed. And the thing is, there was word in Walker County that they had been doing this to prisoners. But there wasn't proof before. Now there finally was. Now they're about to be exposed. And so my friend Ryan, of course, was enraged. And with his church, he organized a protest at the Walker County Sheriff's Office. And I want to read part of his speech. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. Like, this is the type of Christianity I'm talking about. In his speech, he said, oh, actually, first of all, the demands before I read that part, was to release all footage to Tony's family, both body cams and jail surveillance, and um, the immediate resignation of Sheriff Nick Smith and corrections officer T.J. Armstrong and all the other officer personnel who were involved directly or indirectly. And long-term demands the creation of a non-police-operated emergency medical response team that will respond to all instances of medical distress and wellness checks funded by the money Walker County has and is receiving on behalf of the National Opioid Settlements. And two, the creation of an independent police oversight committee as a means of holding the Walker County Sheriff's Department accountable to the country's constituents. I never growing up thought that I would ever hear a pastor talking about that. But there's a lot of them. There's a lot of us. So then in his speech, he says, it would be naive, nay foolish, to think that what has happened to Tony was merely a glitch in the system. This type of treatment is not a bug. It's a feature, y'all. He's from Alabama, I remember. 
And he said, from the so-called punishment cell with no windows, bed, or even a pot to piss in, to the lies and attempts to pretend as if there is no blood on their hands, we know how they treat inmates. We know that corrections officers collect and share videos of inmate abuse like they are playing some kind of sick and twisted trading card game. We also know that this behavior is not isolated to the Walker County Sheriff's Office Department. Don't worry, JPD, the, in the other county. Our, our eyes are on you, too. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth once said that we will know a tree by its fruit. And it's clear that this whole thing is rotten all the way down to the root. We know that this is the fruit of a culture of abuse and toxicity. The problem with the Walker County Sheriff's Office is that for all their God talk and claims to serve Jesus, you know, like Jesus, you know that guy who was murdered in police custody? For all that talk, they must have missed the parts about their sins finding them out or about how we all reap what we sow or that Jesus came to cast down the mighty, not give them a badge and a bullet. And to free the captives, not lead, leave them in a concrete box to die like some kind of animal. What goes on behind them walls when the PR cameras are off is nothing short of demonic. To treat another human being this way is blasphemy. <laughs> I can't unsee what, what I've seen. That's Jesus. I still like Jesus a lot. A lot, a lot. I'm more passionate about this Jesus than ever. I can't believe I'm here to just talk to you guys about Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is, but, but of course, like I'm saying, when I talk about Jesus, this is the Jesus I'm talking about. Yeah, let's just do a short, a short Q&A, and then you can ask me questions without the mic, too, in a bit. Uh, so I, I guess, like, the way I'd like to phrase my question is, so with this new view of like approaching Christianity in terms of liberation theology, is there still any room for the spiritual practices? Uh, and, and when I say spiritual practices, I'm assuming like, how can one talk to God? I mean, is prayer still practical for the liberation theologian or for, uh, you know, just a layman, layman Christian, right? Um, yeah, I guess that's like, is there any use of spirituality then? Or is this more so, is, um, I feel like liberation theology is like centered on the here and now, which I do agree, right? This is more like the uh, bringing the kingdom of heaven here on earth, right? Working towards justice and whatnot. But uh, is there any use in terms of spiritual talk? Is there anything there? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, real quick, for those that don't know, because he mentioned liberation theology, which is, um, I mean, there's, during Vatican II, um, there's a lot of these bishop, councils of Catholic bishops who talked about changes and updates they would make in response to the new world. But a lot of those councils were responding to pluralism in their context. So they said, okay, let's have the mass be in the language of the people instead of Latin. And others said, okay, let's uh, try to work with Protestants sometimes instead of saying they're all going to hell. So there's some of that. And then in Latin America, their context was severe poverty and underdevelopment. 
So that's what they were talking about. And they reclaimed some of the Catholic social teaching that that already existed that was saying God is on the side of the oppressed. And there's a slogan, God has a preferential option for the poor. And they made that central and started building like a systematic theology from that. This man named Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian priest, wrote this book called The Theology of Liberation. And one could say liberation theology always existed. Like you, it's like black liberation theology started becoming more systematic and a little bit after that, but you could also say that that was going on in the hush houses that slaves were in when, where they had some time together to talk about their faith in a more radical way. And then you could also say, well, it goes back to um, the early church, the early Christians talking about liberation. Well, it goes back to Jesus. Well, actually, it goes back to the prophets. Like, we could go all the way. That's where liberation theology really started. You could also do that with deconstruction. Like, that's where deconstruction really started. But uh, I love it because it makes faith so practical. And it's about... Um, the way that they talked about the poor, those Latin American liberation theologians, wasn't just about individual charity, but about God is on the side of the poor as they struggle for freedom from those who have the power to make them poor. I think that's, that's the big distinction. And so, it could get really abstract, I know, of like, yeah, God, leading, leading revolution on the side of the poor, it's like, but can I pray is an, a good question that doesn't get answered enough. And so there's definitely differences among different liberation theologians and how they would view that. Some more traditional on that. Like, of course, you could pray and you should pray your prayers. Um, and then others, I don't know. Don't, don't talk about it at all. But I've, I'm, yeah. And then as for me, I've, I've like... I went through a few changes on my thoughts on prayer because growing up it was very manifestation e it was very law of attraction the way that's a weird thing the way that new thought movement mixed with Pentecostalism and they both talk about prayer in the exact same way word of faith stuff too like don't don't say you're sick because that'll make you sick like weird weird but it, so I got that like messed me up for a bit and uh, I went through a season where it's like, I'm not going to pray at all. Um, instead, I'm, if I'm not going to pray for people. I'm just going to say what I feel needs to be said to them, stuff like that. And I think I needed that season. Now I'm coming back to it slowly. And a big reason is because I've also given up the idea of a God that is... Um, in the future somewhere in some other realm who has history written out and just turning pages like C.S. Lewis said it's like I don't I don't think that's the experience of God in the Bible I don't, I don't see that in the universe I believe God is experiencing this with us in real time with us here and that's where a door opens for prayer for me because if that's true if God is experiencing all this with us then prayer works because anything could happen. You can ask for anything. It's um, the future is wide open, in other words. And so now 
I think uh, I pray, I pray for, um, for comfort. I pray like to ease my anxiety. I pray, um, I like praying some of the old traditional Catholic prayers too, because a lot of times I don't know what to say. And so I find that helps me. And then there is value in the rituals because also growing up, a lot of people would like see the word religion in a weird way. Like, what is that old YouTube video? Why I hate religion, but love Jesus. And I get it, but now I see the word religion as describing, it's the things you do. It's like the rituals, the prayers, it's the prayer beads, it's the icons, it's worship, it's church. And, um, and that's part of your spiritual faith is to have those rituals that keep you grounded so that this stuff doesn't remain so abstract. And, um, and so I think it's, yeah, definitely important to develop a spiritual practice that is able to keep you grounded. But right now, at this point in my life, I'm also trying to figure out what that looks like. But, um, but yeah, so all I, can, all I can say is I think it's important to keep that. So we'll find it. We'll figure it out, I'm sure. <laughs> but, yeah, anybody, anybody else with a question? Or anything? One? Like I said, we could talk afterward, too. I, I guess I was just wondering, um, like, nonviolent protests, civil disturbance versus violence. Like, where, where do you, how do you deal with that? Or how, do, how does that play out? Because we know, like, some of the protests in, like, say, the Black Lives Matter period, sometimes a protest can elements of it can get kind of out of control perhaps and innocent can be affected. So how does that all interact and play? Thank you. That, that's another good question. Uh, I talk a lot about that in the last chapter. Um, like I save the spiciest conversations for the end. But so, so I, I expand more in there, but I'll say... A big thing for me that helped me look at it differently was distinguishing between a lens of harm and a lens of crime. And through the lens of crime, like almost everything about most protests were wrong. Even though those crimes were often people not hurting anyone. And often when there was uh, destruction of property. It was big business that would have been saved by insurance. And when there was looting, people weren't stealing them to get rich. They were pouring them out onto the streets for people to take, which I think is an important uh, interpretation to have when you consider this, what the spirit of looting actually is. I'm not saying it's always good. Um, but I think we need to understand that the spirit of looting, like the news often made it seem, wasn't people like, oh, we could do anything, we could steal anything. It was 
part of this message that things need to be different and it's wrong that our communities have so little and part of this is um, motivates us to do this as well. And I, um, and then, but when we have a lens of harm, there, there was harm in several different protests to, like you said, to innocent people. But when we approach it with that lens of harm, we, I think we cr can critique it way better instead of saying like, well, it was wrong or you should have listened to the police. It's like, okay, that person was harmed or those people were harmed. You should do things differently. And, and it becomes more about uh, a critique of it so it can keep going, not a critique of it so you could just discount the whole thing. And so in the book, ultimately, I don't, I'm not writing this to say, so go out and riot. But I also would never say, don't go out and riot for anything. It's rather what I am saying is this is inevitable as the world continues to maintain its oppression and maintain its suppression of any movements who are fighting to be free. We've seen it throughout history. Um, revolt is a long historical process of many protests, many strikes, and um, many different forms of mass action that eventually lead to things changing. And that usually happens through the oppressed taking power from their oppressors. And in different countries and in different instances that looks different. And so I can't really say like generalize, well, this is how you should always do it because every context is different. Um, and then as for Jesus, what's interesting, what I find really interesting about Jesus is I don't think Jesus was pro-violence, but I also don't think he was like the non-violent, anti-violence either. He wasn't, that's a better way to say it, anti, I don't think he was anti-violence either. He never said anything about it. And what's interesting, he would have known that there were violent Jewish revolts at the time. Jesus's ministry is sandwiched in between two major Jewish revolts. And 4 BC, Judas the Galilean leads this revolt, um, and then they're crushed. And then 70, another revolt, which leads to the destruction of the temple. And Jesus and the writers of the gospel knew of these and felt no need to include a section of like, this is bad, don't do this. Um, also not to say, this is good, let's do some more. And so I think, but here's what I'm trying to say. What Jesus was interested in is the kind of community you build after that takes place. Because Jesus, like every other Jew, was totally convinced that God was going to destroy the Roman Empire. Like, violently destroy the Roman Empire. That's what his, his prophecies about, like, that we say is about, like, the end times. That's what he's referring to. And he's talking about the destruction of the Roman Empire. And so he was interested in saying, okay, of course this has to come down. This is an evil empire that God is against. But let's talk about the type of communities we want to build after that with alternative values where we take care of one another, we share property, everyone's needs are taken care of. And so, yeah, it's complex, but I want to leave it complex. So I'll say that. <laughs> but yeah, let's just, let's just hang out and talk. 
we could, yeah, we could get rid of the mic. Thank you for coming, if anyone has to go. Um, I appreciate you being here. This is my second, like, in-person book event from this book that came out in August. So I feel good, and thank you for inviting me.